Good evening and welcome to the Noah Hyde Nation's class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, November 21st. I'm Doug Taylor. Welcome, glad to have you with us. We are going to start tonight in the 16th chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7. And the verse reads, It is the will of God that you go in the path of man. Also, his enemies will make peace with him. It is the will of God that you go in the path of man. Also, his enemies will make peace with him. So, as we do in all or virtually all these classes, I'll start by asking what are the questions we would want to ask around that verse? What isn't clear? What needs definition? What don't we understand? What are the questions? Linda, thank you. Whose enemies are they? When it says his enemies, whose? Who's the he? Because we haven't identified that person necessarily. And why, I might go a step further and say, why will they make peace with him? What's causing that to actually occur? And then, on the first half, what does it mean to go in the path of man? I mean, that's an interesting way for King Solomon to put it. It seems a little bit odd because um, what about the, the path of evil, pers- evil people? You know, people go in some kind of a path or an incorrect path. So what's King Solomon trying to get at here? There's the question. And Lori and Terry, you've said, what ways does Hashem favor? So I'm guessing that your translation probably uh, says that Hashem favors uh, something. And I don't know which translation you're using, uh, or whether it comes at this from a different angle, or whether it's just a similar way of saying the uh, same thing. Uh, okay, and it's not, which, which version? Is it uh, Art Scrolls? It's Art Scrolls. It's Art Scroll. Okay. All right. And uh, they may translate this one uh, just a little bit differently than uh, Rabbi Moskowitz did. Let me get my Art Scroll version here just so uh, I can see exactly what they're saying on 16.7. Yeah, when Hashem favors a man's ways... So they take a slightly different approach uh, on the translation. It says even his foes will make peace with him. So I'm going to go with um, Rabbi Moskowitz's translation here. Uh, And again, that's not to take anything away from Art Scroll and that that couldn't be uh, also an approach. Sometimes when you... Make a translation or translate a particular verse a particular way, it takes you down a particular path. And another translation could take you down a different path, which could also be just as valid. Um, so there are, are different ways to go. And sometimes, and if you've read the, the Art Scroll version of Proverbs, they take, um, you know, the commentators sometimes take uh, different approaches to these verses. And there's something that, you know, we can learn from all those. So in looking at this particular approach, it is the will of God that you go in the path of man. I'm going to suggest that the path of man then must mean the correct path. Because if it's the will of God that you go in that path, then it seems like it must be the correct path. Which I'll suggest would be the path of righteousness, the path of justice, the path of understanding, of following true ideas, analyzing situations and consequences, things that we have talked about in other verses uh, of Proverbs, doing those things and acting in accordance with those ideas. So let me then establish the path of man means the correct path. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz said like this, He talked about King David, and he said, King David, you know, in one sense, was kind of a bloody guy. 
I mean, he killed his enemies. He didn't exactly make peace with them. And, you know, when we look in the narrative, we see, I mean, he was a warrior. But we also read in Psalms that it says that he helped his enemies. So how can that be? I mean, that seems like a contradiction. I mean, he helps his enemies, yet he went to war with them and he killed them. So, you know, how does, how does that work? And Rabbi Moscow had said like this, there are two types of enemies. The first type of enemy is one that you can't talk to. For example, it, you can't really talk in reason with a Nazi. You can't really talk in reason with a suicide bomber or people like that and somehow make peace with them. They have it in mind that, you know, they're basically going to rule over you or kill you unless you agree with their approach, and there's no discussion of that. It's just, that's the way it is. If you really think through the, the idea of a, a suicide bomber who says, you know, if you don't believe the way I do and follow the way of life that I demand of you, I will kill you and I'm willing to kill myself in the process. There's no real discussion to be had there. I mean, the person is not open to an idea. Uh, we see in the, in the Torah, God talked to Pharaoh or tried to talk to Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh would not listen. So the first type of enemy is what we could refer to as an enemy of God, an enemy of truth and reality. And you cannot be friendly with that kind of person. Okay, there's no peace to be had there. Um, again, looking at terrorists or those kinds of things, you know, there's not going to be any peaceful coexistence. Okay, their approach is you accept my way or you die. So no discussion is possible. The second type of enemy is a personal enemy. Okay, you've had a difference over something. Uh, there was a, maybe a misunderstanding or you did something that offended him or he did something that offended you or whatever. And with a personal enemy, you should back off and try to make peace with him. Okay, because making peace there is, or at least may be, a possibility. You can possibly figure out a way to reach a peaceful agreement, to mutually coexist, to... Uh, figured out, you know, what, to, uh, you know, what's the appropriate thing to do. Okay, so let me pause there. And Laurie and Terry, you said King David showed some of his enemies mercy who were willing to receive mercy. Yeah, there were certain cases um, when David would do that. It's a very, there has to be very careful discernment in figuring out, well, who do you show mercy to and who do you not? Saul showed mercy to uh, one of his enemies, and, you know, he was uh, judged for it, so, or judged negatively for it. So you have to be careful and know, okay, you know, when do I do that and when I not, and when you do that and when you don't is a, an entire study in itself. Uh, <clears throat> and the stories of King David, I think, can be used to figure out, okay, you know, when did he do it? When did he not do it? What's the difference between one situation and another, you know, and why? Uh, so very, very good point. And you, you, you know, have to understand that. There are some type of people who have wrong ideas that you could talk to. And, you know, you might be able to uh, help them to see the truth and help them on the right path. There are other people that if you do that, they would be like a snake in the grass and they will come back and bite you. So um, there, there has to be uh, a discernment. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out that in terms of methodology, okay, of how we analyze this verse, you'll notice that when we got to the part about his enemies, the second half, we subdivided it. And we said, okay, there are two different types of enemies. Um, here. Now, question could be asked, well, 
King Solomon didn't subdivide the verse, so why should we do that? And the answer is because we learn how to think about these situations and these uh, kinds of uh, analyses from the oral law. Uh, if you learn Talmud, okay, the process generally is, as I understand it, when you see a contradiction, that the, they will then subdivide it into multiple cases. Okay? And that's a flag that if you see a blatant contradiction between one thing and another, it suggests, okay, there must be different kinds of cases that we're talking about, and the writer is referring to one of them, which, you know, thus prevents us from having a contradiction rather than uh, another. Okay, so back to our subject. So, we're trying to make peace with a personal enemy. This is the second type of enemy. We've got a personal enemy and we're trying to make peace with him. What stops us from making that peace and how do we deal with her? How can we get over that? So l let's just for a moment pause and ask that question. If you've got some gripe against somebody, okay, and you know, you could try to go make peace with them, but you, but you don't. What is it that is stopping you from doing that? Any thoughts? Have you ever run into that situation? The Meiri says that it's stubbornness. Okay? That we, we have a certain stubborn streak in us, which is probably ego-caused. And so, most people, uh, if, if you get into arguments with them, they probably, you could probably make friends with them if you could speak to them in a certain way. But if you close off, you know, your emotions to them, you've got this stubbornness in the way, then it's unlikely that any peace will actually happen because you're caught in some kind of a personal resistance framework. Like, I, you know, I just don't like that guy. I don't, you know, I don't want to make friends with him. I don't want to make peace with him. And, <clears throat> excuse me, that's what uh, can prevent us from actually making peace, where if we approach the person in uh, a way that they could appreciate or from their standpoint or their point of view, then we might be uh, in a position to be able to make peace with them. So, w w why is that even important? I mean, so what? Okay, so I got this guy and I just don't like him and, and you know, I'm, I'm bummed at him uh, or I'm angry with him, um, but, you know, I don't really want to go solve it. So, what difference does it make? Well, that anger that we feel toward an enemy doesn't let us see reality, okay? We're caught up in a situation where that emotion is clouding our reality. And that maintains a situation where we have an enemy. And the worst thing about an enemy is that you never know when the enemy is going to hurt you. Uh, this is a, a theme that comes up uh, multiple times in Proverbs it's very bad to have enemies, okay? You want to avoid enemies because enemies can hurt you when you don't expect it, okay? It's better to make peace with somebody than to sit there at odds because you don't know that they're not just smoldering, waiting for a chance when your guard is down to nail you. And from a practical standpoint, remember Proverbs is a practical book, that's not a good way to live, okay? Okay, uh, Terry and Lori, you mentioned some experience in life uh, tells you that some people will not make peace because they cannot understand uh, where you are in a particular situation. Agreed. Um, one of the difficulties and challenges in dealing with people, especially ones where you have an issue with them or uh, maybe they're difficult people, is they have a particular point of view about life. 
you have a particular point of view about life. And those two points of view are at odds. Now, if they're unwilling to see where you are in the situation, that conflict is going to continue. So what you have to do is be the one to bridge the gap because they're not going to. Uh, and so if you can step in their shoes and see, oh, you know, I mean, I was really mad at Harry about that thing, but I, if I really think about what Harry's thinking about, he feels like I embarrassed him or, you know, whatever Harry's thinking and get inside of his head, then it's, um, it's much easier to make peace. One of the keys towards successful negotiations, uh, even if it's, if it's not a case where people are angry with each other, is trying to put yourself in the shoes of the other person and think about, okay, where are they coming from on this? What are they thinking? Why are they thinking it? Um, there's a uh, very interesting story uh, told uh, uh, a, about a, um, and it was told by, if I recall, Herb Cohen uh, in a book called You Can Negotiate Anything. And I, I may not have all the details quite right from memory, but you'll get the gist. He, is, he was a professional negotiator. He's trying to negotiate uh, a, a, a business deal. And what's happening is a company uh, wants to buy another company. And they, the, uh, the buying company uh, uh, arranged or retained Cohen to be the negotiator to try to make this deal come together. And the company that was being bought, or that they hoped would be bought, cost, and I'm picking numbers out of the air, but let's say $5 million, or the, the owner wanted $5 million for his company. It was a private company. He owned the whole thing. The problem was that the, com the company wasn't worth $5 million. You know, by virtually any reasonable measure, maybe it was worth 3.9, 4.2 something, but it was not worth $5 million. And Herb tried everything he could think of in terms of negotiation to try to get this guy to lower his price down to something that was reasonable. And the guy just would not move. And I was like, well, what's going on here? I mean, there's no reason that the guy should be asking $5 million for this company. And if I recall the way Herb described the story in his book, he ended up going out to lunch or dinner with this guy, the owner of the company, and he sat down with him. And in the course of the conversation, it came out that the guy had a brother. And the brother owned a business. And the brother sold his business. And the brother sold his business for $5 million. The same price that this guy was asking for his company. And suddenly a light bulb goes on in Herb Cohen's mind and he realizes this is not about the money. This is about this guy not wanting to feel like his brother got a better deal than he did. About not being bested, if you will, in the business marketplace by his brother. And with that piece of information, by being able to get into that guy's head and see the world the way that guy was looking at it, Herb was able to structure a deal, and I forget the details, but it was something that uh, gave this guy the appearance, and I don't mean deceptively, but the appearance, maybe it was done with stock options or something, of getting a $5 million deal while the company got what they wanted for a reasonable price. And it came about because he was able to bridge that gap and get into the head of the other person and see how they were viewing the world. So our job in this is to do that. It's to try to get in the other person's head and take out our own emotions and our own ego and say, how are they looking at things? And when that happens, then we can start seeing a whole other viewpoint and that can really help us to bridge peace. Okay, any questions on that or this interpretation of the verse?
Okay, let me just add one other interesting interpretation, which comes at this verse from a, a different angle. It asks the question, so what are the enemies of God? And it goes like this. It explains like this. When the Jews don't relate to God correctly, anti-Semitism flourishes. But when the Jews do relate correctly to God, then the world has respect for the Jewish people. So as I understand it, this interpretation is saying that when the Jews relate to God correctly, then the enemies of the Jews will be at peace with them. Okay, so a, a, a very different approach to the verse, and just want to show you that both, both interpretations, you know, are, uh, are reasonable. Uh, so we can have multiple interpretations uh, of a single verse and, you know, get important information from both of those. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, thank you, Linda. Uh, in that case, we'll move on to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 8. And it says, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. So, what do you think? What kinds of questions are sitting, staring at us in that verse? Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. We have to question sometimes what seems obvious because it's very easy sometimes to glide right over something and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, but we don't necessarily have it completely worked out. So, Linda, good. What is the little and what is the great? It says better is a little with righteousness. A little what? Um, and yes, Lori and Terry, through a little righteousness or uh, a little with righteousness, how much is a little? You know? Um, and I'd ask one more kind of holistic question. Why is this statement true? Yeah, I mean, we all think this idealistically, but practically speaking, in day-to-day -day day -day life, why is it true? I mean, why shouldn't a person go after great revenues, even if he has to do it with injustice? And Linda, good question. What is the injustice? Okay. So, I mean, we're... We, it's, it's fair to ask the question, well, why shouldn't I get great revenue if I can do it with injustice? Why is justice such, a, such an important thing? Why not go after that? If I could have, you know, $500 million and I had to do it with injustice, well, gee, I could do a lot with $500 million, you know, wouldn't that be a good thing? So let's see what we can glean here. I will start by suggesting... Um, and yeah, Lori and Terry, what, what's right and what's wrong? Very good. Uh, we all kind of jump to that conclusion sometimes without necessarily defining, well, what is what right and what is wrong? Uh, we, you know, may have sort of a general idea, but when it comes right down to practical things that we have to do on a daily basis, you know, how do we define that? So, so let me start by suggesting that the little in the first half, when it talks about better, is a little with righteousness. I'm going to suggest that refers to income. And the reason I'm going to suggest it is that it matches the second half, which is talking about revenue or financial intake. So, in other words, the verse would be telling us that it is somehow better, and we haven't yet figured out why, but it is somehow better to have less income, as long as you do it with righteousness, than to have a bigger income that is gained somehow through injustice. Now, 
some of the commentators take the, the little part to mean quantity in a broader sense. But for our interpretation, let's just consider it as financial income and, and go from there. So the big question that, that I would want to zero in on is, why is this true? I mean, what is the advantage of having a small income with righteousness over having a big income with injustice? So to answer that, let's look at righteousness. I mean, what is it? And I'll suggest that righteousness is that state where we are engaging our intellect to overcome our emotions where we're analyzing situations, where we're operating in accordance with reality, where we're making decisions on the basis of consequences, and we are doing so taking into account the society in which we live. That is, the effect of our actions in addition to ourselves. Okay, and the latter part there is about justice looking at, at the effect of what I do on the whole of society. So, for example, if I were able to make a quick buck doing something that had a really horrible effect on my community's environment, even though it was, say, legal to do, okay, justice would suggest that that's not a good thing to do because there's a negative impact on the rest of society. So we could sum it up by saying that a righteous person is one who operates in accordance with truth and justice. Now, I'm not saying here a righteous person doesn't have the emotional desires and the desires to take vengeance against someone who's wronged them or, you know, to go after uh, the physical pleasures or whatever. Uh, I mean, there is a certain a very, very high level where a person might reach uh, where they don't even have those desires. But a righteous person, you know, uh, can, can have those. It's that they overcome them enough to operate on the basis of truth and reality. Their actions are done on the basis of truth and, and justice. So I'll suggest that's righteousness. So then I could ask the question, so? I mean, why should I care? So let's look at the benefits, just the practical benefits for a person who operates in accordance with truth and justice. And I will suggest that there are four or three. First of all, the person has peace of mind. Why? Because he or she knows that they are operating in accordance with reality. And they know that that is all they can do in life. So they are doing everything possible that they can. Okay? Second, closely related to that, they don't fret over the results. Why? Because they recognize, and this is hugely important, that results are not in their hands. They know that the only righteous person knows that the only thing that he can control is his actions, okay? And to some degree, his thoughts. So he does what he can that's within his realm of control, and he recognizes that results are in God's hands. You know, I can plan and do all the things, and we've discussed this in a number of verses. We discussed this last week. I can you know, make all kinds of plans, at least I think it was last week, I can make all kinds of plans, but the end results are up to God, okay? So the, the person who's righteous doesn't fret over results. Third, the actions of a righteous person create peace with other people, okay? We live in a world where it is very difficult to be totally isolated and independent and not need anything from anybody else. Every manufactured thing that we use, other people were involved in putting together. Okay, I know of no one that can subsist completely on their own with no tools, implements, or anything that someone else didn't make. 
we are an interrelated society. So when a person uh, acts in this way with truth and justice, the people who he deals with or she deals with recognize that they can trust that person. And so there's a trust that happens with other people. I mean, granted, there are always people and situations in life uh, that we have to be wary of, but because the righteous person sees these things and can guard against them, and because he lives at peace with other people, he doesn't have to constantly look over his shoulder wondering if the guy he did business with yesterday or his neighbor is going to attack him out of vengeance uh, for something that he did to, to hurt him. He lives at relative peace with his community. Okay, So he has peace of mind, he doesn't fret over the results, and his actions create peace with other people. Okay? So those are three clear benefits that I would suggest happen for the righteous person. Now, Lori and Terry, you've said when a righteous man plans his way, Hashem will help him. Yet when a person operates, I'll suggest, in accordance with truth and justice, okay, there's a certain outlook that's involved in that. You know, you, you see the world in a, in a different way when you're looking at it in terms of, you know, I'm one piece of the whole picture. That's a, uh, a, uh, a case of raising yourself to a higher level. And as you raise yourself to a higher level, it's my understanding from all this learning that Hashem relates to you in a, relates to you differently. So, you know, you've suggested when a righteous person plans his way, Hashem will help him. Okay? So, God's personal providence can sometimes step in and help the righteous person. And as we've discussed, there are two systems in place. There are the laws of nature and God's personal providence. Uh, and God's personal providence uh, steps in at certain times when a person has reached a certain level. So, by you know, operating at a righteous level, a person is reinforcing that type of life for himself. Okay, anything else you'd want to add to the list of benefits of a righteous person before we go on? Okay, so now let's look at the opposite. Let's look at the unjust person, the person who operates with injustice. What benefits does he get? What are the results of his lifestyle? So again, I'll suggest there are three results of the lifestyle of injustice. Number one, because he's operating according to his emotions and not according to reality, he's going to constantly be in conflict. Okay? Can't help it. He's operating against reality. He has to be in a conflict situation. Now, it may not show from the outside, but we don't get to see necessarily what's on the inside. And his emotions have to be constantly bumping up against reality and reality and his emotions are in conflict. So here's a person who's living a life that is going to constantly cause him internal conflict. So that's the first result. Second result, he's constantly concerned over results. Why? Because he thinks he can control them. So his stress level has got to be relatively high because he always has to be wondering whether he's covered this factor or that factor, and when things don't go as planned, he gets really upset. Why? Because life didn't work out according to his plan, and he expected that it should. He expects the results to be what he wants them to be. Recall that the righteous person is interested in taking proper actions and recognizes the results are out of his hands so he doesn't fret about results. The unjust person does. They're worried about results. And the third result that that person's going to get is that he has to constantly watch his back. 
because he operates with injustice, there are people out there who he has wronged, and they're upset, okay? They're gunning for him. In one way or another, he is not at peace with his community. So he constantly has to be careful and to be wary because he doesn't know when someone's going to try to get back at him for the things that he did to them. If you think about, for example, organized crime hierarchies, you know, person works his way up the chain sometimes by bumping off the guy uh, above him. So once he gets into power, he's constantly going to have to be worried about another guy who's coming up who may do the same thing to him to get him out of power. So you've got this constant worrying about, you know, am I protected? Is anybody going to double-cross me? Can I trust the people around me? A whole set of huge stress factors that the just and righteous person doesn't have to worry about. Okay. Uh, let me pause there and see if is there anything else that you would want to add to the list for the unjust person. Laurie and Terry, you've said he's always in fear. Yes, uh, it's, it's a form of fear of never knowing, gosh, is this going to work out? Am I going to get caught? Am I going to get shot? Am I going to get, you know, somebody going to get after me? It's, I mean, we really stop to think about it. That's a terrible way to live, you know, to constantly be in that state. But when you're living an unjust life and you're running over people uh, and you're at odds with your community, uh, you're going you're gonna to have that fear and you're also going to have the internal conflict because life is never going to measure up to those emotional desires. Okay, It can't, just by virtue of the fact that you are in conflict with reality. Okay, so given that, now, if we reword the verse a little, we have something like this. Better is a little with internal peace, no fretting over results, and peace with your community, than great revenues with internal conflict, constant worry over results, and constant vigilance against revenge from the people you've wronged. So, when we look at that, which one is better? Okay. The only advantage here that the unjust guy seems to have is more money, but he can't even enjoy it. All money represents is possibilities. Okay, the money itself is of no value. The money is a store of value that you can use to make possible things happen. And if you can't have peace and enjoy what the money will bring, then why would you want to go there? Because just having the money, but without the peace, is going to be a miserable existence. A $200 dinner with conflict is still a dinner with conflict. A $10 dinner with peace is still a dinner with peace. So the verse is teaching us that it's not the material abundance that is important or the desirable thing, but the quality of life that you have with whatever amount of materiality that you possess. The righteous life is the better life from a very practical standpoint, regardless of the financial income level. Okay, and this verse as I understand it, is teaching us that. Okay, any questions on this? Okay, good. Let's go on then to Proverbs <clears throat> chapter 16 and verse 9. And the verse reads, A man's heart plans his way, but Hashem directs his steps. A man's heart plans his way, but Hashem directs his steps. So, what jumps off the page about that? What questions would we ask with regard to that verse? A man's heart plans his way, but Hashem directs his steps. 
Okay, Linda, thank you. How does a heart plant? Yeah, it seems in our parlance of the terms these days, this seems like a funny way to put it. And I'll add then, what does it mean that Hashem directs his steps? I mean, that kind of seems odd because right here, King Solomon didn't make any specification of a righteous man or a wicked man. So what does King Solomon mean that Hashem directs his steps? And what's the practical message for us here? I mean, why is King Solomon, you know, why is King Solomon telling us this? And yes, Linda, how does Hashem direct steps? Okay, and Laurie and Terry, you've mentioned Hashem will set your plans straight. Yes, but here it seems that, that the verse is saying, it's talking about the plan in the first half, but the actual steps in the second half. So let's see if we can unravel this and figure out what's going on. So starting with the first half, in life, we make plans. Okay, we do it all the time. Doesn't matter whether we plan to just pick up a loaf of bread at the store or start a multi-million dollar enterprise. We make plans. We have to. I mean, we, we do it without thinking about it, but in fact, we do. If we're gonna go to build a house, we draw up plans. <clears throat> if we're gonna go on a vacation, we make a plan. It may just kind of be in our mind, but we make plans, okay? And Linda, you've said, a man plans and Hashem laughs. That's a very, very good point. And, and I don't recall the, the source of that, but I think we're going to get to what that means in the explanation of this verse. So thank you for bringing that up. Now, when it says a man's heart, <clears throat> I presume that it is referring to his mind. We've discussed in other verses that in the days that this book was written, the word heart was often used to refer to the mind. We tend to think of heart today as the emotions, <clears throat> but in those days, um, I understand from Rabbi Moskowitz that heart meant the person's mind. So we've got there that our mind plans our ways, okay? And again, sometimes we aren't even conscious of it, but we do plan. For example, we might say, let's see, uh, I'm gonna drop off the pants at the cleaners and then gas up the car and then head to the airport to pick up my friend. And let's see, the first errand ought to take five minutes, the second one 10 minutes, and then the trip to the airport's 30 minutes. So if I leave 45 minutes in advance, I should be fine, okay? That's a plan. I mean, we do that all the time. <clears throat> but one of the most important realizations is that in the physical world, we only control actions. Yes, Linda, that's a good point. And then life happens. Okay, we control actions, not the results. Okay, and Laurie and Terry, you said all of our plans are set forth from Hashem. Not sure the source from of that. Uh, we think we're doing this all ourselves. Uh, I would suggest that, that people are making plans themselves. In other words, they're using their mind in the physical world to, um, to make a plan for various actions. Everything from how am I going to get my kid through college to uh, when am I going to study to... How am I going to get to work tomorrow? And what am I going to have for lunch? Um, so remember, Proverbs is a very practical book. It's dealing with life in the practical. So we control the actions, but not the results. And um, uh, yes, and, and then, as you say, then life happens. So... All kinds of things occur that we don't anticipate or that are completely outside of our control. 
This can be a really tough idea to get because our society generally holds us responsible for results. So a salesman who doesn't produce gets fired. A student who doesn't get good enough grades fails. Uh, a mother who works diligently to plan a big family event suddenly finds that the weather turns really inclement and everyone cancels at the last minute. <clears throat> she had a great plan for this wonderful party, but then it snowed and nobody could get there. Okay. Um, and uh, Lori and Terry are saying what we were, you were referring to was that all things are uh, or our learning. I'm not sure what you mean by the last part, so if you can clarify that for me. Uh, oh, all things are for our learning. Okay, thank you. Yes, we can learn something from all this. Uh, and, and the key here that I think that I understand this verse is getting to, uh, and this was, um, if I recall Rabbi Moskowitz's interpretation was, we don't control outcomes, that's Hashem's department. Okay? We plan in the first half, but Hashem directs his steps. The outcome, the result, is in Hashem's hands because there are always factors outside of our control. Okay? So the verse is saying that a man's heart plans his way. That is, that we establish plans for things, but the results are in Hashem's hands. So, if that's true, then what's our responsibility in life? It's to do everything we can do in a situation. We have to take whatever action we need to take and that is within our control to take. Okay? And then we pray that our efforts are successful and that God will take care of all the outside factors, all the things that we can't control. So you can't sit around on your couch, you know, and not work for a living and say, you know, God, please provide me, uh, you know, bread or food that will somehow magically show up on my doorstep. No, get out of your chair, go get to work, earn a living, go buy the bread or grow the food or do something. Do what is within your control. But if you think about farming, for example, okay, farmer tills the field, puts the seeds in the ground. Uh, as someone pointed out to me once, farmers don't grow crops. All farmers do is create an environment in which crops can grow. But the germination of that seed and the rain to water those crops and, you know, all the temperatures acting right, that's all in the hands of Hashem. Okay? Farmer can't control that. So all we can do is do what we can and then pray to Hashem and recognize that the results are in His hands. Okay? He controls the outcome. Now, this is an important practical realization that can lead to real peace of mind. Because when you're in a situation and you've done everything you can do, then you can let go of it and not worry or fret. Because you know the results are in God's hands. You have done everything you could so it's like, okay, I'm done. God, I hope you will make this situation successful. And I recognize you're in control. The results are in your hands. And this is not some like fantasy pie in the sky idea that, well, you know, doesn't really matter what I do because everything's in God's hands. It's a very practical approach to recognizing what's in my control and what's out of my control. Actions that I can do are in my control, and I have a responsibility to do those. The rest is up to God. Rabbi Moskowitz has often quoted uh, the story of Jacob and Esau. Uh, when Jacob had left Laban, and he had his wives Rachel and Leah, and his kids and his whole you know, flocks and everything, and uh, he's, he's left Laban, and he gets word that Esau... Has, is coming to meet him with 400 men. 
And, you know, you usually don't go calling on people with 400 men uh, unless you have some other agenda. And so, uh, and I think we've, we've discussed this uh, in another class, Jacob thinks through the situation and takes the actions that are available to him. He divides up his camp so that if there's a war, a part of his group hopefully will be able to escape. Okay? He sends a whole bunch of gifts to Esau. You know, nice gifts on, on animals spaced apart so that it, the Esau gets one and then the next one and then the next one and then the next one. You know, it's like sending the woman that you love but just had an argument with you know, a dozen roses every hour for an entire day. You know, pretty soon she's hopefully going to recognize that you're really sincere. So he sends gifts to Esau in order to try to achieve peace, and he also prays. Okay, so the verse is teaching us a very practical approach about how to think about life. We plan, we make plans, we take whatever steps we can, and then we recognize that the end result is in the hands of Hashem. And fully realizing that idea can give us a huge amount of peace. A huge amount of peace because we don't have to be responsible for the results. We just have to be responsible to um, do what we can uh, and take the actions that are available to us. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz said once, uh, and I, I really appreciated his comment, he said, in any situation, there is really only one question to ask. And the question is, did I do the right thing? If I've done the right thing and I've done everything I can do, that is all that I can do. It's the only thing within my power. And nothing else is available. So I don't have to sweat it after that because whatever happens is up to Hashem. Yes, it may not be the outcome that I would have preferred, but it's the outcome that happened. And if I love reality, okay, we talk about reality a lot. If I really love the reality that God created and I've done everything I can do, then I will love the outcome because that is the reality that God created, uh, that came about because of the systems that God built. Okay. Again, I might have preferred something else, but this is what happened. So, hey, I will now work with that, and then I'll ask myself the question, okay, what do I do now? What is my practical next step? What do I have to do? Uh, and, you know, if, if I were... If you were Jacob and the war starts, then the next question is, okay, how do I best win the war or, you know, escape as best as possible? It's a very practical thing, okay? Or if there's peace, okay, what do I do next? So it's, I plan, I take the actions I can, then when the results come, whatever they are, then I ask myself a question, what's my next step, Okay. What's my next practical action? Okay, any questions about that verse or this approach? Okay, in that case, we will stop for the night. Thank you again very much for, uh, for joining, and I hope you can join us, join us next week. And have a great week. Thank you, Dr.